0: On this episode of the Blue Poetry Podcast, Quindell reads "Think and Grow Rich" chapter two, which speaks about how desire can simply be one of the main and leading causes of of getting what you want, like desiring it, not just wishing for it or wanting it, but having a deep desire for it. You know, so check it out. Thank you for tuning into the podcast and. You'll just be listening to Quindell read Chapter 2 of Think and Grow Rich. It's a pretty amazing book that, you know, is very influential in our time. Let's go! If you don't know, you're about to know right now. You're about to learn. Education. I'm Quindell Evans, and this is the Blue Poetry Podcast, where we speak about the habits that it takes to create a successful life, and the habits that it takes to overcome a stressful life. On this podcast, we're going to be reading. You know, I like to read 30 minutes a day, so I want to bring you on that journey with me. Sometimes I'm reading, you know, while I'm out and everything. But I'm reading in the crib right now, so I'm going to, you know, record myself since I have the opportunity to. So we're reading "Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. One of the most notable self-help books um, of all time. And I'm on chapter two. And chapter two is called Desire, the Starting Point of All Achievement, the First Step to Riches. One second. Chapter two, Desire, the Starting Point of All Achievement, the First Step to Riches. When Edwin C. Barnes climbed down from the freight train in Orange, New Jersey, he may have resembled a tramp, but his thoughts were those of a king. As he made his way to Thomas A. Edison's office, his mind was at work. He saw himself standing in Edison's presence. He heard himself asking Mr. Edison for an opportunity to carry out the one consuming obsession of his life—a burning desire to become the business associate of the great inventor. Barnes's desire was not a hope, it was not a wish. It was a keen, pulsating desire, which transcended everything else. It was definite. The desire was not new when he approached Edison. It had been Barnes' dominating desire for a long time. In the beginning, when the desire first appeared in his mind, it may have been, probably was, only a wish. But it was no more a wish when he appeared before Edison with it. But it was no mere wish when he appeared before Edison with it. A few years later, Edwin C. Barnes again stood before Edison in the same office where he first met the inventor. This time, his desire had been translated into reality. He was in business with Edison. The dominating dream of his life had become a reality. Today, people who know Barnes envy him because of the break life yielded him. They see him in the days of his triumph without taking the trouble to investigate the cause of his success. Barnes succeeded because he chose a definite goal and placed all his energy, all his willpower and all his effort into achieving that goal. He did not become the partner of Edison the day he arrived. He was contented to start in the most menial work as long as it provided an opportunity to take even one step toward his cherished goal. Five years passed before the chance he had been seeking made its appearance. During all those years, not one ray of hope, not one promise of attainment of his desire had been held out to him. To everyone except himself, he appeared only another cog in the Edison business wheel, but in his own mind, he was the partner of Edison every minute of the time, from the very day he first went to work there. It is a remarkable illustration of the power of a definite desire. Barnes won his goal because he wanted to be a business associate of Mr. Edison more than he wanted anything else. He created a plan by which to attain that purpose, but he burned all bridges behind him. He stood by his desire until it became the dominating obsession of his life and finally a fact. When he went to Orange, he did not say to himself, I will try to induce Edison to give me a job of some sort. He said I would see Edison and put him on notice that I have come to go into business with him. He did not say I will work there for a few months and if I get no encouragement I will quit and get a job somewhere else he did say I would start anywhere I would do anything Edison tells me to do but before I am through I will be his associate he did not say I will keep my eyes open for another opportunity in case I fail to get what I want in the Edison organization he said there is but one thing in this world I am determined to have and that is a business associating with Thomas Edison I will burn all bridges behind me and stake my entire future on my ability to get what I want He left himself no possible way of retreat. He had to win or perish. That is all there is to Barnes' story of success. A long while ago, a great warrior had to make a decision which ensured success on the battlefield. He was about to send armies against a powerful foe whose men outnumbered his own. He loaded his soldiers into boats, sailed to the enemy's country, unloaded soldiers and equipment, then gave the order to burn the ships that had carried them. Addressing his men before the first battle, he said, You see the boats going up in smoke? That means we cannot leave these shores alive unless we win. We now have no choice. We win or we perish. They won. Every person who wins in any undertaking must be willing to burn his ships and cut all sources of retreat. Only by so doing can one be sure of maintaining that state of mind known as a burning desire to win, a century to success. The morning after the Great Chicago Fire, a group of merchants stood on State Street looking at the smoking remains of what had been their stores. They went into a conference to decide if they would try to rebuild or leave Chicago and start over in a more promising part of the country. They reached a decision, all except one, to leave Chicago. The merchant who decided to stay and rebuild pointed a finger at the remains of his store and said, gentlemen, on that very spot, I will build the world's greatest store, no matter how many times it may burn down. The store was built. It stands there today, the towering monument to the power of the of that state of mind known as a burning desire, the easy thing for Marshall Field to have done would have been exactly what his fellow merchants did when the going was hard and the future looked dismal. They pulled up and went where the going seemed easier mark well mark well mark well this difference Mark well this difference between Marshall Field and the other merchants because it is the same difference that distinguishes Edwin C. Barnes from thousands of other young men who have worked in the Edison organization. It is the same difference that distinguishes practically all who succeed from those who fail. Every human being who understands the purpose of money wishes for it. Wishing will not bring riches. But desiring riches with a state of mind that becomes an obsession, then plan in definite ways and means to acquire riches and backing those plans with persistence, which does not recognize failure or bring riches. The method by which desire for riches can be transmuted into into its financial equivalent consists of six definite practical steps. One, fixing your mind the exact amount of money you desire. It is not sufficient merely to say I want plenty of money. Be definite as to the amount. There is a psychological reason for definiteness which will be described in a subsequent chapter. Determine exactly what you intend to give in return for the money you desire. There is no such reality as something for nothing. Establish a definite date when you intend to possess the money you desire. Create a definite plan for carrying out your desire and and begin at once whether you are ready or not to put this plan into action. Write out a clear, concise statement of the amount of money you intend to acquire. Name the time limit for its acquisition. State what you intend to give in return for the money and describe clearly the plan through which you intend to accumulate it. Read your written statement aloud twice daily, once just before retiring at night and once after rising in the morning. As you read, see and feel and believe believe yourself already in possession of the money. It is important that you follow the instructions described in these six steps. It is especially important that you observe and follow the instructions in the sixth paragraph. You may complain that it is impossible for you to see yourself in possession of money before you actually have it. Here is where a burning desire will come to your aid. If you truly desire money so keenly that your desire is an obsession, you will have no difficulty in convincing yourself that you will acquire it. The object is to want money and to become so determined to have it that you convince yourself you will have it. Only those who become money conscious ever accumulate great riches. Money consciousness means that the mind has become so thoroughly saturated with the desire for money that one can see oneself already in possession of it. To those who have not been schooled in the working principles of the human mind, these instructions may appear impractical. It may be helpful to all who fail to recognize the soundness of the six steps, to know that the information they conveyed was received from Andrew Carnegie, who began as an ordinary laborer in the steel mills. Despite his humble beginning, Carnegie managed to make these principles yield him a fortune of considerably more than $100 million. It may be a further help to know that the six steps recommended here were carefully scrutinized by Thomas Edison. He places a stamp of approval upon them as being not only the steps essential for the accumulation of money, but also for the attainment of any definite goal. The steps call for no hard labor. They call for no sacrifice. They do not require one to become ridiculous or credulous. To apply them calls for no great amount of education. Be the successful application of these six steps does call for a sufficient imagination to enable one to see, to understand, that accumulation of money cannot be left to chance. Good fortune and luck. One must realize that all who have accumulated great fortunes first did a certain amount of dreaming, hoping, wishing, desiring, and planning before they acquired money. You may as well know also that every great leader from the dawn of civilization down to the present was a dreamer. If you do not see great riches in your imagination, you will never see them in your bank balance. Never has there been so great an opportunity for practical dreamers as now exists. We who are in this race for riches, should be encouraged to know that this dynamic world in which we live is demanding new ideas, new ways of doing things, new leaders, new inventions, new methods of teaching, new methods of marketing, new books, new literature, new applications for computers, new cures for diseases, and new approaches to every aspect of business and life. Behind this demand for new and better things, there is one quality one must possess to win, and that is definiteness of purpose, the knowledge of what one wants, and the burning desire to possess it. To accomplish this requires practical dreamers who can and will put their dreams into action. The practical dreamers have always been and always will be the pattern makers of civilization. We who desire to accumulate riches should remember that the real leaders of the world have always been people who harness and put into practical use the intangible, unseen forces of unborn opportunity. They have converted those forces or impulses of thought into skyscrapers, cities, factories, airplanes, cars, better health care, and every form of convenience that makes life more pleasant. Tolerance and an open mind are practical necessities for the dreamer of today. Those who are afraid of new ideas are doomed before they start. Never has there been a time more favorable to pioneers than the present. There is a vast business, financial, and industrial world to be remolded and redirected along new and better lines. In planning to acquire your share of the riches, let no one influence you to scorn the dreamer. To win the big stakes in this ever changing world, you must catch the spirit of the great pioneers of the past, whose dreams have given to civilization all that it has of value, the spirit which serves as the lifeblood of our society, your opportunity in mind to develop and market our talents. Let us not forget Columbus dreamed of an unknown world, staked his life on the existence of such a world, and discovered it. Copernicus, the great astronomer, dreamed of a multiplicity of worlds and revealed them. No one denounced him as impractical after he had triumphed. Instead, the world worshiped at his shrine, thus proving once more that success requires no apologies. Failure permits no alibis. If the thing you wish to do is right and you believe in it, go ahead and do it. Put your dream across and never mind what they say if you meet temporary defeat, for they perhaps do not know that every failure brings with it the seed of an equivalent success. Henry Ford, poor and uneducated, dreamed of a horseless carriage. He went to work with what tools he possessed without waiting for opportunity to favor him, and now evidence of his dream belts the entire earth. He has put more wheels into operation than any man who ever lived because he was not afraid to back his dreams. Thomas Edison dreamed of a lamp that could be operated by electricity. Despite more than 10,000 failures, he stood by that dream until he made it a physical reality. Practical dreamers do not quit. Lincoln dreamed of freedom for the, for the black slaves, but put his dreams into actions and barely missed living to see a united North and South translate his dream into reality. The Wright brothers dreamed of a machine that would fly through the air. Now one may see evidence all over the world that they dreamed soundly. Marconi dreamed of a system for harnessing the intangible forces of the ether. Evidence that he did not dream in vain may be found in every radio, TV and cell phone in the world. Moreover, Marconi's dream brought the humblest cabin and the most stately manor house side house. Moreover, Marconi's dream brought the humblest cabin and the most stately house side by side. It made the people of every nation on earth next door neighbors by creating a medium where news, information, and entertainment could instantly be disseminated throughout the world. It may interest you to know that Marconi's friends had him taken into custody and examined in a psychopathic hospital when he announced he had discovered a principle through which he could send messages through the air without the aid of wires or other direct physical means of communication. The dreamers of today fare better. The world has become accustomed to new discoveries. Indeed, it has shown a willingness to reward the dreamer who gives the world a new idea. Ray Kroc is another good example of someone who made his dream come true. Kroc was a salesman of milkshake mix- mixes. Most of his customers Restaurants and diners purchased one or two units. When he received an order for eight mixes from a small food outlet in San Bernardino, California, he decided to visit them and see how they could sell so many shakes. It was the busiest restaurant he had ever seen. The owners, the McDonald brothers, offered a very limited menu, hamburgers, cheeseburgers, french fries, shakes, and soft drinks, all at the lowest prices in the area. Croc saw an opportunity. If he could open a chain of these restaurants, each as productive and profitable as this, money would flow in. He proposed the idea to the McDonald brothers and agreed to implement it. Within a few years, McDonald's not only became the top-selling food outlet in the country, but created the fast food industry. Crock later bought out the McDonald brothers and, explained the business, and expanded the business into an international phenomenon, making him one of the richest men of his time. The world is filled with an abundance of opportunity which the dreamers of the past never knew. A burning desire to be and to do is the starting point from which the dreamer must take off. Dreams are not born on indifference, laziness, or lack of ambition. The world no longer scoffs at dreamers, nor calls them impractical. Remember too that all who succeed in life get off to a bad start and pass through many heartbreaking struggles before they arrive. The turning point in the lives of those who succeed usually comes at the moment of some crisis through which they are introduced to their other selves. John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress after he had been confined in prison and sorely punished because of his religious views. O Henry discovered the genius that slept within his brain after he had met with great misfortune after he had met with great misfortune and was confined in a prison cell in Columbus, Ohio. Being forced through misfortune to become acquainted with his other self and to use his imagination, he discovered himself to be a great author instead of a miserable criminal and outcast. Strange and varied are the ways of life and the strangest still are the ways of infinite intelligence through which people are sometimes forced to undergo all sorts of punishment before discovering their own brains and their own capacity to create useful ideas through imagination. Edison, the world's greatest inventor and scientist, was a part-time telegraph operator. He failed a number of times before he was driven finally to, discover, to the discovery of the genius that slept within his brain. Charles Dickens began by pasting labels on blacking posts. The tragedy of his first love penetrated the depths of his soul and converted him into one of the world's truly great authors. Disappointment over love affairs generally has the effect of driving people to drink and ruin. This is because most people never learn the art of transmuting their strongest emotions into dreams of a constructive nature. Helen Keller became deaf, dumb, and blind shortly after birth. Despite her great misfortune, her name is written indelibly in the pages of the history of the great. Her entire life served as, as evidence that no one is ever defeated until defeat has been accepted as reality. Robert Burns was an illiterate country lad. He was cursed by poverty and grew up to be a drunkard. The world was made better for his having lived because he clothed beautiful thoughts and poetry, thereby plucking a the thorn and planting a rose in his place. Booker T. Washington was born in slavery, handicapped by race and color. Because he was tolerant, had an open mind at all times on, his, on all subjects, and was a dreamer, he left his empress for good on an entire race. Beethoven was deaf, Milton was blind, but their names will last as long as time endures because they dreamed and translated their dreams into organized thought. Arnold Schwarzenegger is another person who converted his desire into action and achievement. He first came into the public eye as Mr. Universe, a glorified weightlifter. But Schwarzenegger was not a typical muscle man. He was a man with dreams and goals. He achieved them by becoming a wealthy businessman, one of the highest paid movie stars, and eventually governor of California. Born and raised in Austria as a child, he began training as a weightlifter. At 18, he won the first bodybuilding contest and the first of five he won his first bodybuilding contest in the first of five consecutive Mr. Universe titles. He immigrated to the United States and continued winning similar contests. Although he had accomplished more than any other person in the art of bodybuilding, it was no longer a challenge. He sought other areas where he could use his talents. His training and physical development told him that there was a need for knowledge about physical fitness. He had the knowledge and wanted to share it. He wrote an autobiography, Arnold, The Education of a Bodybuilder, which became a bestseller. He followed it with a book on bodybuilding for women, showing female readers how to use weight training to get in shape. This led to the creation of a male-order exercise business and a company to produce bodybuilding events. These businesses started him on the road to business success. His next goal was to become a movie star. Even before he had secured his first movie role, he set himself a goal to be as big in movies as he was in bodybuilding. After turning down minor roles, his persistence paid off when he was cast in cast as the lead in Conan the Barbarian. This led to a series of action films that made him one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood. Success in the movies did not make Schwarzenegger complacent. He set new goals for himself, this time in the world of business. He invested in real estate, created a restaurant chain, and became actively involved in other enterprises and became a multimillionaire. As his successes mounted, however, he added what became his dream goal to serve the community. He traveled around the country to promote health and fitness for the youth. He went into the inner cities and inspired the kids to eschew violence and crime, to say no to to drugs, guns and gangs, and yes to education. He has taken an active leadership role in several organizations dedicated to physical fitness and health. In 2003 Schwarzenegger threw his hat into the ring and was overwhelmingly elected as the new governor of California. You can learn much from this man. In setting goals, you are not limited to any area. Schwarzenegger could have limited his future to bodybuilding and became quite successful, but he dreamed of much more, set higher goals, and strove to reach them. He learned from his successes and adapted this knowledge to other aspects of life. Like Schwarzenegger, do not be discouraged by criticism. Critics belittled his acting ability in his first films, where he was not dissuaded and pursued his goal to become one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood. Before passing to the next chapter, kindle anew in your mind the fire of hope, faith, courage, and tolerance. If you have chose these states of mind and a working knowledge of the principles described, all else that you need will come to you when you are ready for it. Let Emerson state the thought in these, new, in these, in these words. Every proverb, every book, every byword that belongs t- to thee for aid and comfort shall surely come home through open or winding passages. Every friend whom not thy fantastic every friend whom not thy fantastic fantastic will, but the great and tender soul in thee Kravits shall lock thee in this embrace. There's a difference between wishing for a thing and being ready to receive it. No one is ready for a thing until he believes he can acquire it. The state of mind must be belief not mere hope or wish. Open-mindedness is essential for belief. Closed minds do not inspire faith, courage, or belief. Remember, no more effort is required to aim high in life, to demand abundance and prosperity than is required to accept misery and poverty. A great poet has correctly stated this universal truth through these lines. I bargained with life for a penny, and life would pay no more. However, I begged at evening when I counted my scanty store. For life is just employer, for life is just. For life is a just employer. He gives you what you ask, but once you have set the wages, why you must bear the task. I worked for many years higher, only to learn dismayed, that any wage I had asked of life, life would have willingly paid. Mary Kay Ash, the founder of Mary Kay Cosmetics attributed her success to the development of self-confidence and faith in herself and in all the people in her vast organization, which now consists of more than 250,000 independent beauty consultants worldwide. Her sales career began 25 years earlier when she joined Stanley Home Products. She often commented that she was not at all successful during her first year and was ready to give up. This changed when she attended her first Stanley Cell Seminar. She reported, there I saw this tall, svelte, pretty, successful woman crowned queen as a reward for being the best in a company contest. I determined to be that queen the following year, which seemed impossible. However, I decided to go up and talk to the president and tell him that I intended to be the queen next year. Mr. Beveridge didn't laugh at me, but looked me in the eye, held my hand and said, somehow I think you will. Those five words drove me and the next year I was, I was queen. Mary Kay preached and practiced that the first step in achieving success is to firmly believe that you are an excellent person who deserves success. In an article on Personal Excellence, she suggested some exercises to help create your image of excellence and begin to establish an atmosphere of success in your life. Here are some of her suggestions. Imagine yourself successful. Always picture yourself successful. Visualize the person you desire to become. Set aside time each day to be alone and undisturbed. Get comfortable and relax. Close your eyes and concentrate on your desires and goals. See yourself in this new environment, capable and self-confident. Reflect on your past successes. Every success, be it large or small, is proof that you are capable of achieving more success. Celebrate each success. You can recall it when you begin to lose faith in yourself. Set definite goals. Have a clear direction of where you want to go. Be aware when you begin to deviate from these goals and take immediate corrective action. Respond POSITIVELY TO LIFE Develop a positive self-image. Your image, your reactions to life, and your decisions are completely within your control. Desire outwits Mother Nature. As a fitting climax to the chapter, I wish to introduce one of the most unusual people I've ever known. I first saw him a few minutes after he was born. He came into the world without any physical signs of ears, and the doctor admitted when pressed for an opinion that the child might be deaf and mute for life. I challenged the doctor's opinion. I had the right to do so. I was the child's father. I too reached a decision and rendered an opinion, but I expressed the opinion silently in the secrecy of my own heart. I decided that my son would hear and speak. Nature could send me a child without ears, but nature could not induce me to accept the reality of the affliction. In my own mind, I knew that my son would hear and speak. How? I was sure there must be a way, and I knew I would find it. I thought of the words of the immortal Emerson. The whole course of things goes to teach us faith. We need only obey. There's guidance for each of us, and by lowly listening, we shall hear the right word. The right word? Desire. More than anything else, I desired that my son should not be a deaf mute. From that desire, I never receded, not for a second. Many years previously, I had written, our only limitations are those we set up in our own minds. For the first time, I wondered if that statement were true. Lying on the bed in front of me was a newly born child without the natural equipment of hearing. Even though he might hear and speak, he was obviously disfigured for life. Surely this was a limitation which that had not set up in it was a limitation which that child had not set up in his own mind. What could I do about it? Somehow I would find a way to transplant into that child's mind, my own burning desire for my ways and means of conveying sound to his brain, without the aid of ears. As soon as the child was old enough to cooperate, I would fill his mind so completely with the burning desire to hear that nature would, by methods of her own, translate it into physical reality. All this thinking took place in my own mind, and I spoke of it to no one. Every day I renewed the pledge I had made to myself not to accept a deaf mute for a son. As he grew older and began to take notice of things around him, we observed that he had a slight degree of hearing. When he reached the age when children usually begin talking, he made no attempt to speak, but we could tell by his actions that he could hear certain sounds slightly. That was all I wanted to know. I was convinced that if he could hear even slightly, he might develop still greater hearing capacity. Then something happened which gave me hope. It came from an entirely unexpected source. We bought a record player. When the child heard the music for the first time, he went into ecstasies and promptly appropriated the machine. He soon showed a preference for certain records. Among them, it's a long way to Tipperary. On one occasion, he played that piece over and over for almost two hours, standing in front of the record player with his teeth clamped on the edge of the case. The significance of this self-formed habit of his did not become clear to us until years later, for we had never heard of the principle of bone conduction of sound at the time. Shortly after he appropriated the record player, I discovered that he could hear me quite clearly when I spoke on my lips, touching his mastoid bone behind the ear or at the base of the brain. These discoveries placed in my possession a necessary media by which I began to translate into reality my burning desire to help my son develop hearing and speech by the time he was making stabs at, by, that, by that time he was making stabs at speaking certain words. The outlook was far from encouraging, but desire backed by faith knows no such word is impossible. Having determined that he could hear the sound of my voice plainly plainly, I began immediately to transfer his to his mind the desire to hear him speak. I soon discovered that the child enjoyed bedtime stories, so I went to work creating stories designed to develop in him self-reliance, imagination, and a keen desire to hear and to be normal. There was one story in particular which I emphasized by giving it some new and dramatic coloring each time it was told. It was designed to plant in his mind the thought that his affliction was not a liability but an asset of great value. Despite the fact that all the philosophy I had examined clearly indicated that every adversity brings with it the seed of an equivalent advantage, I must confess that I had not the slightest idea how this affliction could ever become an asset. However, I continued my practice of wrapping that philosophy in bedtime stories, hoping that the time would come when he would find some plan by which his handicap could be made to serve some useful purpose. Reason told me plainly that there was no adequate compensation for the lack of airs and natural hearing equipment. Desire backed by faith pushed Reason aside and inspired me to carry on. As I analyzed the experience in retrospect, I can see now that my son's faith in me had much to do with the astounding results. He did not question anything I told him. I showed him the idea that he had a distinct advantage over his older brother, and that this advantage will reflect itself in many ways. For example, the teachers in school would observe that he had no ears, and because of this, they would show him special attention and treat him with extraordinary kindness. They always did. His mother saw to that by visiting the teachers and arranging with them to give the child the extra attention necessary. I sowed the idea, too that when he became old enough to sell newspapers, his older brother had already become a newspaper merchant. He would have a big advantage over his brother as people would pay him extra money for his wares because they could see he was a bright, industrious boy despite the fact he had no ears. We noticed that gradually the child's hearing was improving. Moreover, he had not the slightest idea, the slightest tendency to be self-conscious because of his affliction. When he was about seven, he showed the first evidence that our method of serving his mind was bearing fruit. For several months, he begged for the privilege of selling newspapers, but his mother would not give her consent. She was afraid that his deafness made it unsafe for him to go on the street alone. Finally, he took matters into his own hands. One afternoon, when he was left at home with the servants, he climbed through the kitchen window, shinned to the ground, and set out on his own. He borrowed six cents in capital from the neighborhood shoemaker, invested it Invested it in papers, sold out, reinvested, and kept repeating until late in the evening. After balancing his accounts and paying back the six cents he had borrowed from his banker, he had a net profit of 42 cents. When we got home that night, we found him in bed asleep with the money slightly clenched in his hand his mother opened his hand removed the coins and cried of all things crying over her son's first victory seemed so inappropriate my reaction was the reverse i laughed heartily for i knew that my endeavor to plant in the child's mind an attitude of faith in himself had been successful his mother saw in his first Business venture, a little deaf boy who had gone out on the streets and risked his life to earn money. I saw a brave, ambitious, self-reliant little businessman who stocking himself had increased 100% because he had gone into business on his own initiative and had won. The transaction pleased me because I knew he had given evidence of a trait of resourcefulness that would go with him all through life. Later, events proved this to be true. When his older brother wanted something, he would lie down on the floor, kick his feet in the air, cry for it, and get it. When the little deaf boy wanted something, he would plan a way to earn the money, then buy it for himself. He still follows that plan. Truly, my own son has taught me that handicaps can be converted into stepping stones on which one may climb towards some worthy goal, unless they are accepted as obstacles and used as alibis. The little deaf boy went through the grades high school and college without being able to hear his teachers, except when they shouted loudly at close range. He did not go to a school for the deaf. We would not permit him to learn sign language. We were determined that he should live a normal life and associate with normal children, and we stood by that decision, although it cost us many heated debates with school officials. While he was in high school, he tried an electrical hearing aid, but it was of no value to him. We believed this was due to a condition that was disclosed when the child was six. Dr. J. Gordon Wilson of Chicago operated on one side of the boy's head and discovered that there was no sign of natural hearing equipment. During his last week in college, 18 years after operation, something happened which marked the most important turning point of his life. Through what seemed to be mere chance, he came into possession of another electrical hearing device, which was sent to him on trial. He was slow about testing it due to his disappointment with a similar device. Finally, he picked the instrument up and more or less carelessly placed it on his head, hooked up the battery, and lo, as if by a stroke of magic, his lifelong desire for normal hearing became a reality. For the first time in his life, he had practically as well as any person with normal hearing. God moves in mysterious ways his one is to perform. Overjoyed because of the changed world that had been brought to him through his hearing device, he rushed to the telephone, called his mother, and heard her voice perfectly. The next day, he plainly heard the voices of his professors in class for the first time in his life. He heard the radio. He heard the cinema. For the first time in his life, he could converse freely with other people without them having to speak loudly. Truly, he had to come into possession of a changed world. We had refused to accept nature's error, and by persistent desire, we had induced nature to correct that error through the only practical means available. Desire had commenced to pay dividends, but the victory was not yet complete. The boy still had to find a definite and practical way to convert his handicap into an equivalent asset. Hardly realizing the significance of what had already been accomplished, but intoxicated with the joy of his newly discovered world of sound, he wrote a letter to the manufacturer of the hearing aid enthusiastically describing his experience. Something in his letter, something perhaps which was not written on the lines but between them, caused the company to invite him to New York. When he arrived, he was escorted through the factory. While talking with the chief engineer, telling him about his changed world, a hunch, an idea, or inspiration, call it what you wish, flashed into his mind. It was this impulse of thought which converted his affliction into an asset destined to pay dividends in both money and happiness to thousands for all to come. The sum and substance of that impulse of thought was this. It occurred to him that he might be of help to millions of deaf people who go through life without the benefit of hearing devices, if he could find a way to tell them the story of his changed world. Then and there, he reached the decision to devote the remainder of his life to providing a useful service to the heart of hearing. For an entire month, he carried out intensive research. He analyzed the entire marketing system of the manufacturer of the hearing device and created ways and means of communicating with the heart of hearing all over the world for the purpose of sharing with them his newly discovered changed world. When this was done, he wrote a two-year plan based upon his findings. On presenting the plan to the company, he was instantly given a position for the purpose of carrying out his ambition. Little did he dream when he when he went to work, that he was destined to bring hope and practical relief to thousands of deaf people who, without his help, would have been doomed forever to deaf mutism. Shortly after he became associated with the manufacture of his hearing aid, he invented he invited me to attend a class conducted by his company for the purpose of teaching deaf mutes to hear and speak. I had never heard of such a form of education, therefore I visited the class, skeptical but hopeful that my time would not be entirely wasted. Here I saw a demonstration that gave me a greatly enlarged vision of what I had done to arouse and keep alive in my son's mind a desire for normal hearing. I saw a deaf mute actually being taught to hear and speak through application of the self-same principle I had used more than 20 years previously in saving my son from deaf mutism. Thus, through some strange turn of the will of fate, my son Blair and I were destined to aid in correcting deaf mutism for those as yet unborn. There's no doubt in my mind that Blair would have been a deaf mute all his life if his mother and I had not managed to shape his mind as we did. When Blair was an adult, Dr. Irvin Voorhees, A noted specialist on such cases examined him thoroughly. He was astounded when he learned how well my son hears and speaks and said his examination indicated that theoretically the boy should not be able to hear at all. But the lad does hear despite the fact that x-ray pictures show there is no opening in the skull whatsoever from where his ears should be to the brain. When I planted in his mind a desire to hear and talk and live as a normal person, there went that impulse some strange influence which caused nature to become bridge builder and span the gulf of silence between his brain and the outer world by some means which the keenest medical specialists have not been able to interpret. It would be sacrilege for me to even conjecture as to how nature performed this miracle. It would be unforgivable if I neglected to tell the world as much as I know of the humble part I assumed in a strange experience. It is my duty and a privilege to say I believe, and not without reason, that nothing is impossible to the person who backs desire with enduring faith. I have no doubt that a burning desire has devious ways of transmuting itself into a physical equivalent. Blair desired normal hearing. Now he has it. He was born with a handicap, which might easily have sent one with a less defined desire to the street with a bundle of pencils and a tin cap. That handicap now promises to serve as a medium by which by which he will render useful service to many millions of hard of hearing as well as to give him useful employment and adequate financial compensation for the remainder of his life. The little white lies I planted in his mind when he was a child, leading him to believe his affliction would become a great asset on which he could capitalize, having been justified. There is nothing right or wrong which belief plus burning desire cannot make real. These qualities are free to everyone. In all my experience in dealing with the men and women who had personal problems, I never handled a single case which more definitely demonstrates the power of desire. Authors, sometimes, make the mistake of writing a subject of which they have but superficial or very elementary knowledge. It has been my good fortune to have had the privilege of testing the soundness of the power of desire through the affliction of my own son. Perhaps it was providential that the experience came as it did, for surely no one is better prepared than he to serve as an example of what happens when desires are put to the test. If Mother Nature bends to the will of desire, is it logical that mere men can defeat a burning desire? Strange and imponderable is the power of the human mind. We do not understand the method by which it uses every circumstance, every individual, every physical thing within it within its reach as a means of transmuting desire into physical counterpart. Perhaps science will uncover this secret. I planted in my son's mind a desire to hear and to speak as any normal person hears and speaks. That desire has now become a reality. I planted in his mind a desire to confer his greatest handicap into his greatest asset. That desire has been realized. The modest operandi by which this astounding result was achieved is not hard to describe. It consisted of three very definite facts. First, I mixed faith with desire for normal hearing, which I passed on to my son. Second, I communicated my desire to him in every conceivable way available through persistent continuous effort over a period of years. Third, he believed me. Several years ago, one of my business associates became ill. He became worse as time went on and finally was taken to the hospital for an operation. Just before he was wheeled into my operating room, I took a look at him and wondered how anyone as thin and emaciated as he could possibly go through a major operation successfully. The doctor warned me that there was little, if any, chance of me of my ever seeing him alive again. But that was the doctor's opinion. It was not the opinion of the patient. Just before he was wheeled away, he whispered freely, Do not be disturbed, Chief. I will be out of here in a few days. The attendant nurse looked at me with pity, but the patient did come through safely. After it was all over, the physician his physician said, Nothing but his own desire to life saved him. He never would have pulled through if he had not refused to accept the possibility of death. I believed in the power of desire, and by faith, because I have seen this power lift people from lowly beginnings to, to places of power and wealth. I have seen it rob the grave of its victims. I have seen it serve as the medium by which people stage a comeback after having been defeated in 100 different ways. I have seen it provide my own son with a normal, happy, successful life, despite nature having sent him into the world without heirs. How can one harness and use How can one harness to use the power of desire? This has been answered through this chapter and the subsequent chapters of this book. I wish to convey the thought that all achievement, no matter what its nature or purpose, must begin with an intense burning desire for something definite. Through some strange and powerful principle of mental chemistry, nature wraps up in the impulse of strong desire as something which recognizes no such word as impossible and accepts no such reality as failure. And that's chapter two of Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Thank you for reading with me on the Blue Poultry Podcast. Hopefully I'll come back to you with chapter three.